You're listening to an American Theatre podcast. American Theatre is a publication of Theatre Communications Group. www.americantheatre.org Good afternoon. Welcome to the October 8th, 2021 edition of Offscript American Theatre's podcast about all things theatrical. That's actually a live chat, but it's also a podcast. You're listening to it that way. I'm Rob Weiner Kent, uh, the editor-in-chief of American Theatre Magazine. My pronouns are he, him. I'm coming to you today, actually, from the TCG offices in Manhattan, the unconceded lands of the, of the Napé people. And uh, JR, where are you coming to me? Yeah, I'm J.R. Pierce, uh, pronouns he, him, associate editor here at American Theater. And I'm coming to you from Chicago, which is on the lands of the Porotami, Kickapoo, Miami, Sioux, and Peoria. I noticed you have a new background. You had the you had the Lake Michigan for a long time as your background now. Still the lake. Still We're just there. looking right. east this time. Usually we, we look south, but I felt like looking east today for whatever reason. And I should clarify that my background, in case you're watching this, this, this doesn't mean much to the people listening on the podcast, but um, my background is not Manhattan. That is the Theater for New Audiences, uh, amazing interior. I have that behind me today. And that's, and that's in Brooklyn. I have that behind me today because our guest today is Will Eno, the playwright whose production, Gannit, is about to uh, open there. And uh, it, I've opened there after it. Uh, being postponed. I was about to open or had just opened, or I don't know exactly. I know there was there were performances enough that there were actually, there was a, a tape circulating that some people were looking at, I'm aware of. Um, in any case, it was shut down. Um, and now it's, now it's back as if interrupted and back to life. So we're going to talk to Will about that experience and what that, what that meant for his play and just about his work in general. Can't, can't wait to have that conversation, but first we're going to... Uh, talk about some of the things we've been writing. Not a lot of features since our season preview issue, but lots of news happening. So we're going to dig into some of that. Some of the news we reported, some of it we haven't reported, some work we may report on at some point, but this thing's being talked about a lot this week. Uh, one feature I want to point you to in case you missed it was a wonderful Q&A with Gene Passanante, which is a name I had not heard until the writer pitched the story, but she's, uh, she just retired as a soap opera writer which is one reason I had not heard her name. But before that, she had an amazing career uh, as, a, as a dramaturg and a literary person um, who also was part of John Sayles' uh, sort of crew uh, when he started making movies and actually started making movies with what was a theater company, David Strathairn and a couple other folks. Uh, and she's in the movie, The Return of the Sakaka Seven, which I confess I've never seen. I, I, I've seen a lot of John Sayles movies, but not that one sort of the first one. In any case, not to go too hard, it's worth worth reading because she went on to, to be at the O'Neill at a really crucial time uh, with Lloyd Richards there. She worked at New Dramatists. She was the artistic director of New York Theater Workshop for a fairly short time before Jim Nicola took over. And she's amazingly diplomatic about the board's decision to fire her. You can find out a little bit about why, but she also gave Michael Greif his first job at the, at the New York Theater Workshop and hired Tony Kushner. And the Tony Kushner uh, anecdote she tells is worth reading the whole thing. Um, it's also fascinating to, to see what happens to a, a dramaturg who has a lot of literary skills and then gets sort of wooed away to television. We know that story about playwrights a lot, but it, it's fascinating to see how she was wooed away to, to, to soap opera because she knew story structure. Anyway, it's a, it's a fascinating interview. 
Uh, it's another in a series by Nathaniel G. Nesmith, who comes to me with these amazing folks who, a lot of them a little older, looking back on an amazing career, you know, uh, Steve Carter, the playwright, Krishna Kaurth, uh, who's been Thelma Oliver. I recommend not only reading Gene, the piece passing on to Q&A, but clicking on his byline to see all the other things. He, he happened to talk to Mickey Grant uh, right before she died, not knowing that she was going to die. So we had a wonderful Q&A with her when she died. Anyway, I've talked about that plenty, I think. Um, speaking of good interviews, our last three on the aisle podcast had an interview with Patrick Page, which is definitely worth listening to in all its glory. Uh, JR, there was some other, there's some news that we wrote about uh, that we're always excited to hear about new critical ventures. Could you tell us about those two pieces? Yeah, uh, the one is that uh, the review aggregator website, did they like it, launched last week, I believe it was now. Um, time doesn't exist. <laughs> they they relaunched uh, with their new critic cohort, which is uh, which consists of Vidatri Chowdhury, Christian Lewis, Juan Michael Porter, uh, Ranshaw, Anna Zambrana, and they're all led by Jose Solis. And so they're rolling out their new critic cohort. And I believe they started recently. I think they've already started posting some reviews. I think Jose posted one that's up now. Uh, And then the other one is that Three Views is about to get started with their new cohort of folks with uh, Chicken and Biscuits coming up on the 11th, so this weekend, uh, with a review coming from Brittany Samuel, an interview coming from Jacob Santos, and a purview coming from Calundra, who has written for us. Who writes for us, yeah. Plenty of times. Yeah, it's exciting to have new to have new voices and new. Some of them are not new voices; they're familiar to us, but others are brand new. And just to have them have venues to write about theater, it seems like. And having having both of these sites dedicated to making sure more diverse voices get to participate in these conversations is probably the most exciting part about all of this. Yes, uh, because if you look at, at did they like it, especially their Broadway reviews, you can see how how kind of one-dimensional the people who are reviewing can be. So the dedicated effort from both of these sites to make sure uh, both younger reviewers are getting a shot and that more diverse reviewers are getting a shot to um, have their voices not just supported, but lifted up in a big way. Yeah. 100% support. I mean, I've, the diversity is, is an angle that I've, I've been talking about as well. Also, just places that, that younger writers can write is another good point. I mean, I... I, David Cody, Helen Shaw, we all started somewhere and we all started as young writers at some point and we had a venues to write at Time Out and other places. So having places just to, to, to do the writing, like you, you don't become the seasoned critic until you've been the young critic. So I, I think that's really helpful. Um, then this week there was a three pieces of interesting news. I would, I would categorize as sort of upheaval of a sort. One is a slightly less upheaval and more like uh, heading toward closure. But the one we wrote about was the shocking, devastating closure of the Lark Theater, which is a couple of blocks from where I'm sitting. Um, around for 27 years, a developmental uh, hub with fellowships and, and new play programs that was the home for so many playwrights, not just ones you've heard of that have gone on to Pulitzers and Broadway runs, but just a couple of years ago when we did our unveiling of the top 10 list, we did the event at the Lark. And what was so amazing about that, uh, it was the year that Doll's House part two was, and we had Lucas there. But while, while we were setting up, 
Rob Askins, who was like the top 10 play hand to God a couple of years before, was just sitting in the next room, like writing, like, cause there's playwright, playwrights all over the lark. So, um, you know, their official statement was that it was pandemic and financial. The big question I had, and I tried to talk about in my piece, and it's really not, there's not a great answer to it, is if it was the pandemic, why did they hire Maya Dralis, wonderful director, new play advocate, to their new artistic director this past March or February, they hired her, and then promptly not have the support for her. It's a complicated story, has something to do with rentals, with the pandemic, one thing that was brought out to me was some folks said they don't, they don't rely on earned income and ticket sales. So, you know, do you think they'd be better off? Well, yes. But the flip side of that is they didn't qualify for relief as a, as a presenting organization. So they didn't get that pandemic relief to stay open. It sounds like, anyway, the behind the scenes story may still emerge. The, the, the story that we all get is just devastation and loss. Um, just kind of unremitting. And it's, it's folks around the country and on Twitter are talking about new models and new things that can happen um, to support playwrights. Because we are talking about places that support critics, playwrights need, need places to be supported too. Um, the other two pieces of news, uh, slightly, well, let's start, I'll start with a, another bit of upheaval. Center Theater Group uh, in Los Angeles, a theater that's dear to me. I, I, I saw many great plays there when I was in LA. Announced an ambitious and diverse season uh, at the Mark Taper Forum and at the Kirk Ellis Theater that only had one female playwright. And this caused uh, a bit of a firestorm. And then Jeremy O'Harris, whose play, say, play play, I think was gonna open the season, announced that he was uh, beginning, he was gonna take steps to remove his play from the season uh, in protest. That's still shaking out what's gonna happen with that. Um, I think that the, the CTG has officially committed to gender parity for their next season, pointed out that they have like 11 out of 20 of their commissions are, are out to female playwrights. That's not enough, obviously. Um, we have not reported on this, it's still developing. We may report on it. Um, I don't know, JR and I have talked, to, we've talked about it a lot, JR, like we're not sure what's gonna happen. With that, I don't know if you want to weigh in on that at all. Yeah, I mean, I'm just interested to see if more people will do something similar because we've seen theaters announce seasons across the country that aren't any more diverse than than CTGs. Um, but like like Jeremy pointed out in in tweets, he's in a place where he has the money and like the comfortability and the other income that he's able to take that step back and make that room. And so it's important just like when we're having these conversations to remember that nuance that like not every playwright's in a position to be able to just pull their work and that there are a lot of artists um, who are on the line for a lot of these productions. Um, but there are also a bunch of artists who, who do have enough streams of income to kind of use that influence in a way. Um, so it'll be interesting, like we've seen We've seen Karen Olivo take steps because they were comfortable enough in their life and their path to be able to move away from a production and say no to a production. So um, it's definitely something I'm interested in keeping my eye on, just like how many artists are now able to or comfortable taking that step away um, to stand for, for what they believe in. Yeah, yeah I mean, I think it's, a, it's also what kind of impact it will have. There was a great interview with Celia Keenan-Bolger 
who's going back into Kill a Mockingbird just opened on Broadway. And uh, Adam Feldman at Time Out asked her about, about you know, Scott Rudin, who was a producer on that, on that. and just in general, the, 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 the changes. And, you know, she talked about the great dilemma of, of this age-old in politics and everything. Do you stay inside the system and try to fix it from within, or do you make a protest and pull your, your work to create uh, impact? And, I, you know, it's, uh, I think that's, that's a debate worth having, and we're going to be covering it, let's just say. Uh, the, the other piece of news is uh, it looks like things heading toward closure for the Flea Theater, which last year a lot of stories emerged about longstanding uh, practices there of not paying people was, was one of the ones we heard, but also racism, intimidation, um, and a group called the Fled Collective uh, of the Fled, uh, pun on flea, that I think Will would appreciate, Will, you know, would appreciate probably that, that, that pun. Anyway, uh, that's, a, that's an aside. Um, they have come to a, a terms with the Flea Theater, which has sort of rebooted its mission to be about black, brown, and queer artists and to basically hand over the keys uh, and production credits for their space. And I think it's, it's a, there's a lot more to say about it and we probably will at some point, but it's, it seems like a positive development. They're gonna announce a season, I think as early as January or February and we'll have productions of the Flea again in their new space. Um, I think with that, we're going to, since I mentioned Will, we're going to turn to Willino, the great playwright of Middletown, Tom Paine, based on nothing, and other plays, and of course, the new play, Gnit, which is his free or rough, I don't know what adjective you use, Will, adaptation of Pierre Ghent. Willino, welcome to Offscript. Um, hey, how are you guys? <laughs> we're doing all right. Um, can you hear me? Okay. We can hear you great. All right. Um, I, uh, it, I'll, uh, I'm, I'm, I, I, I was enjo enjoyed listening to um, um, the pun and the whole on the news and the wrap up. Um, I'm, I'm he him, and I'm afraid to say. I imagine I must be similarly tribal lands. I don't know the specific tribes right here in Brooklyn, but um, I, I haven't actually done a lot of semi-formal things like this. And I, I, that's, it's, it's really, I hope a new, a new day is a big way to put it, but I just think, I think that's a, it's just, it seems like the world is, is getting a little more thoughtful and um, I'm catching up, but it's, it's, uh, it's just very, it's, it's uh, nice to, that things begin that way to say, here's, mm -hmm. here's who I am and how I, mm -hmm. how I think of myself and where I'm standing, you know, and where I'm really standing in history and etc. No, I appreciate that. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a, it's a newish thing for us. So I appreciate you noting that. Um, so we wanted to start talking, you know, just about this production and how, and how it came to be. Jared, I think you had some questions to start out. Yeah. I mean, actually just to start, I was just going to open the door for you, Will, just to kind of give a little summary of, of Gannett and tell the audience a little bit about what the play's about. <laughs> yeah, it, it is. I think I used the words a fairly rough translation i think i said um and the uh, that's the subtitle uh it is uh, uh henrik ibsen's um pure gint play an adaptation of that play which is about 150 or 60 years old these days um it itself comes from a lot of <clears throat> norwegian folklore and stuff like that and um and it's a play i uh very quickly i started um a long 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 time ago um 
some friends were messing around with it and I was just sitting in on their rehearsals and, and just and people were just kind of goofing around because Ibsen himself said um, early on in the play's life, he said, it wasn't really written for acting. And then I think people um, kind of twisted his arm a little bit or something <laughs> happened and suddenly it was it was in every regional uh, theater's season for uh, the next hundred and some years. Um, but so I, 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 I just, I, it was something like a love hate relationship with it. Cause I, 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 I loved the absolute reckless ambition of, of it. Um, I kind of hated some things about the main character and the, I, I always found it really, um, it seemed intriguingly perched right between um, a, the end uh, sort of post-Christian and pre-Freudian in a funny way so that it, it, it seemed like um, it has it, and then it sort of resolves in a very Christian way it seems the original and that was another thing that always bugged me about the original play is I always really felt for the um, the character and actor who played Salve the, the main um, as it were love interest and she, this person, either the character or the actress has to disappear for about three acts and 30 years and then come on stage to, to forgive uh, Pierre, Pierre for all of his, uh, um, his laziness and his uh, lack of commitment and, and so on. So I, that is something that I've changed very much in my, uh, in my version. Um, anyway, those are some, some thoughts, J.R., no, I love it because I was going to ask what originally drew you to the like that Ibsen story. So I'm, I love hearing about that. Like, are there certain themes that you knew, like when you were doing your research about uh, Ibsen's work and Pierrot in general? Were there certain themes that you knew immediately, like, oh, this is what I want to write about? I think so. And then I had a really big fundamental shift because it was. It, it's it's ostensibly it if you look it up on Wikipedia I think you'd get the sense that it's it's about the search for self and it's about the um, um, striving to find <clears throat> your true unalloyed self and all that sort of stuff um, and so in some ways this I started this long enough ago that I was a very different in I was it feels like about four people ago how long ago it was um, but so I think my initial attraction even though it had some repulsion in it was about this search for the self i have come to believe that it more was um i hope i'm a good person now i think i was a worse person <laughs> I, I think i was headed toward a life of not of fooling myself into thinking i was on a search for self but actually i was just avoiding other people and avoiding actual life and avoiding all of the the amazing and scary and beautiful and joyous things that can happen with other people. Um, so it, it started in this sort of clinical formal investigation. And then I realized, Oh, wow, this, I, I think I know why I wanted to take on this thing that no one in the world asked me. <laughs> no, no one asks, you know, um, anyway. Well, it sounded like you went on your own little personal journey and like finding I yourself. Did, and, 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 now, and, and it, and, and this final funny little chapter, I was over with Oliver listening to some sound cues the other day, and it is so moving and weird to sit in that theater. And it's it's kind of like the whole thing. If you think about revisitations and you think about Ibsen doing this thing with some old folk tales and and then I did the play eight years ago or so down in, in Humana in a very different version. 
and then got back to it over the last five, six, seven years. And uh, Obama was president and he had just selected Merrick Garland when I met with Jeffrey at Tifana to talk about putting this play on there. And um, But now then it, there's another revisitation, you know, because we got we had uh, um, Rob, we, we had four preview performances, I believe we had not yet officially opened, but we were we were pretty much I had just stopped fussing around with the writing and we were ready to go. And then and then we thought, oh, I guess we're taking a two week break, you know, uh, well, <laughs> supposedly a two week break. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Speaking of that kind of long journey of the play. What what have been the biggest changes you've made? I know I, I personally didn't have a chance to see that 2013 version at Humana. So, like, what's been the what's been the journey that's that you've changed uh, along the way? Uh, I think just it um, it was a, a difficult thing of of wanting to make everyone else's point of view much more um, plausible, reason, reasonable, um, win, winning, but without making. Peter is who I, it's not Pierre in mind thing is Peter Gannett. Um, but without making him a dupe in any way or a fool or just, I think he's, um, I, I think he stands for someone. I hope a little bit, someone different from me in some big ways, but also maybe similarly well intentioned, but maybe not super well informed, maybe not, maybe, occasionally reckless, but not really courageous. Um, you know, a lot of, a lot of things like that. So there was this, some of it was just flipping dials, uh, um, adjusting dials. Um, and that the, the Solve thing was also, was really the big one. Just, I, I, it, it, um, I, I would say spoiler alert, but the thing that's going to follow is a long, <laughs> hemming and hawing philosophical paragraph. So it really wouldn't feel like a spoiler alert, I don't think. But I, I, I hope that people who come to see the play, and boy, I remember the third preview when we realized something was up and it just, um, it was the beginning of this long, long time where so many things just made me cry. And in a, not in a, you know, in a really just full, rich, way that I didn't even know why I was crying, but just something, even then, I think I just, I, I just got some sense that people didn't know what was going on, but they had come to see a play and it just, it seems so quaint in, in some ways, but just also really ancient and beautiful. And, and, um, I don't know. So I'm, I don't know who's coming. If people are coming, I hope people do. And I'm, I'm, I'm sure I'm going to cry again. And I think my, <laughs> My daughter came to, I think, every performance because her school, I think, had <clears throat> stopped. So my daughter at then five was running around and um, at the break, she would tell people that the play <laughs> was horrid. As, as, we, as audiences were returning into the theater, she says, oh, this, this part is horrid. Um, but anyway. That's amazing. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I, I'm going to kind of work in a question we got from Facebook here. Uh, someone on Facebook asked how the past year and a half has affected you as a writer creatively and professionally. And on top of that, I'd love to add like how the past year and a half of the pandemic and any number of other events that have happened in the field and otherwise uh, have affected how you look at, at uh, your play as well. About this play in particular. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, in uh, well, there's a million things to talk. Let's see. I um, I always want to check with people, or I always want to. I, I want to. I, I feel uh, my wife Maria and our daughter Albertine and I had a we were had such a lucky time, and I I you know we had we got out of town for big patches and we had a f- empty friends had places in crazy parts of the world. We were up in Maine in a big barn in a blueberry field for a while. And in that year and a half, my daughter learned to read and ride a bike. And, it, um, and I was there for just about every single, um, wobble and uh, mispronounced word of it. And, um, so it, it's a, I have, and then I know it was such a t- brutally difficult time and impossible time and a mortal time for so many people. So it it's um, so I feel very tender about talking about whatever we all might have uh, experienced because I know everybody had a million different experiences. Um, uh, I I hope the play stands not entirely intact because I'm, I'm sure it's it's shifted in some ways and I, I know I'm I'm excited to see just how it how it feels with with people there I, I hope there's a I hope there's a, a residing um, feeling and message that that um, community and connection were always difficult even when they've been really so severed in in these past months um, but they were always really important and they were maybe even not maybe even, and they are crucial kind of. Um, uh, and you asked a few things. Tell me if, tell me where I'm lagging on all that. No, this is great. <laughs> I think the only other thing is like, has this affected your like creative process at all? Or have you been able to be pretty consistent in that? I, I, I've, I don't know about consistent. I've gotten a lot done. I, I had sort of in the end of 2019, I'd finally started just thinking about television just cause I had a really beautiful, exciting 2019 theater wise, but it really is difficult at the, it's just very difficult at the money end. And <clears throat> so I, I was thinking about focusing on some television ideas and projects, uh, and also strangely got into, <clears throat> um, wrote a couple essays. I was asked to write an essay about Emerson, I mean, um, Thoreau uh, um, for a book that's coming out in a couple of weeks from the Princeton University Press. So I I was doing a bit of that and um, I somehow or other I was doing things and I was kind of getting up at about five in the morning to go from maybe five to 8.30 until things started getting busy in the house. Um, uh, but it, uh, a short dense answer. I, I find it incredibly meaningful to try to be a writer. And I, it, it, um, uh, it, um, I could see it going the other way too, but I, uh, um, uh, I hope I, you know, I just, the, I hope, I imagine we all had some sense of this, that we are individually more fragile than we thought and our, our connections and our communities and our, uh, all those bigger things, the institutions, everything is a little more fragile than we thought, I think. Um, and that, that was, so 
I don't know all of the answers of what to do, but certainly some tenderness and care and, and, you know, um, proceeding with some, some caution and gentleness and leaning forward a bit is certainly a start, I guess. Yeah. I mean, that's why I I enjoyed the themes of commit is because like, there's this idea. I mean, especially for those of us who did like live alone during this past uh, year and a half, that idea of finding yourself and what that journey is and who that journey involves has been uh, a very telling one (laughs) over the last year and a half. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. And then I know I'll kind of, set this up and Rob, Rob can chime in as well. We were, we were both kind of curious about uh, the specific tone of the play and like what your expectations were for the tone of the play. And I'll let Rob chime in a little more on that question. Yeah. I noticed the production note at the beginning and there was echoed at the end that it was that everyone, the, let's see, all the characters share a simple and dry way of delivering their lines. I, I, I know that, um, People, the very few benighted souls who don't know your work will might assume from our conversation that it's all very heavy and serious. And of course it deals with serious themes, but the plays are extraordinarily funny. And uh, I think the note about uh, it's important that the role of Peter is played seriously seems like a corrective note that you want to put in there to make sure that, uh, you know, again, this is this is a, one ways in which your plays have been received by some folks as, as if they're one-liners and joke, quote, jokey. Right. Um, mm. I just wondered if you could address uh, in this case, you wanted to, you know, set up that tone uh, with your collaborators to let them know this play is not just funny, although it is very funny as well. Well, well thanks for that. And uh, yeah, I do. I think it's a really, really beautiful cast. There's three new people and three people returning. Uh, Joe Kernut plays Peter and he's really, really, he's really, really great. And he just gets that thing, which is kind of just this, um, kind of, uh, very, it's, it's a little bit, not quite deadpan, but it's just a very vulnerable sort of open, open deadpan kind of thing. And I don't, <clears throat> I have a favorite joke, which was not mine. Uh, it was by an English comic who tellingly, I don't know who, what his name is. I forgot his name. Um, but he had this thing he said, which was, um, uh, they all laughed when I said I wanted to be a comedian. Well, they're not laughing now. And I think that's sort of the, uh, that's a little bit where Gnit lives, I think, um, where someone is thinking they're saying one thing and maybe is saying a very, very different thing that has, in fact, tragic. They, they, they might think they're boasting, but they're actually opening up the tragic vein of their, of their life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I... I... I interviewed Rain Wilson about uh, when he went to go do Tom Paine in LA and um, he had a quote, which I'd like to throw at you and just see what you think about it. He said that you're not afraid just to tell a joke, just to make people laugh. And then, and, and his, his interpretation or his take on that was that, and I'll quote him, it keeps you off balance. It's canny. Will always goes for the jugular for the emotional story, but he's also unexpectedly funny. You find yourself laughing and that makes you so much more open to receive the next profound moment. I mean, is, is it really that intentional that you want to like throw us off balance with a joke and then pull out the rug or is it a little more intuitive than that? Um, it might be a little, that's a very nice quote from Rain, who's, who uh, <laughs> I, I've known for so, so long. We, uh, we were roommates in uh, 25 years ago or more, more. I don't know. I, I, I had an, 
why did I? Oh, I, I got to New York because I had a, a friend who had an apartment and she said, if you paint it, you could live there for a couple months. So I painted her apartment. I lived there for a couple months and then my couple months was up and answered a, you know, those little tear off things in a, a flyer with roommate wanted. And so I lived with Rain right. and a friend of his um, and always really enjoyed him. And we always had a laugh, but we did not stay friends. We, you know, I, I moved out and that was that. And then I think yeah. I had something published in a little, we got, we got back in touch. I think he was doing Venus, the Susan Laurie Parks thing at the public. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, and I went to go see it, but anyway, he's a good, he's a good, he was really, really, it was, we had not really worked together except for 20 years or so before the Tom Payne thing. Um, but yeah, I think I'm with you on that, <clears throat> Rob, that sort of intuitive and sort of maybe in, I, I do consciously think, well, if you can have people laugh, that's a, just a different body that a laughing body is a, is a mm. different body to receive a, a, a thing that you might want to send out into the air. It probably to be more <clears throat> honest, it might be related to, to fear and deficiencies in my own setup that I, I can only get so close to a thing at a certain point. And then I, I recoil and have to have to sort of reorient to come back at it again or something like that. So it could be, it could just be um, an annoying thing about me. <laughs> well, that, that leads into my, my next question. I noticed in this play and it's a recurring theme, maybe with some of your work, but, and you just mentioned it, that Peter's always running away. He always seems to be running away. He's barely makes it into a moment before he's onto the next one, or he's changed his mind and makes a decision. Yeah. The one moment I noticed where he did seem to pause really pause and take in the moment was when his mother asked him to tell a story, but it's almost as if he knows she's about to leave, you know, no spoilers, but you know, he knows that she's this, this, this moment's going to matter. So he, he should stick around. And because she's leaving, he might be, it's, it's, he has, still has an escape essentially because she's going to leave the room. Essentially, yeah. uh, That's the only moment of sort of repose that he has. And uh, it reminds me of a quote, Isaac Butler wrote a wonderful piece about sort of the new, new takes on the living room play from about six years ago. And open house is one of them. And he said about open house again and again, the open house creeps right up to the edge of an epiphany before screwing somewhere else. And it seems like that might be a bit, a bit of what peer does. And a bit, as you just said, what maybe you do that you, there's an epiphany and then you diffuse it with a joke or, or, or vice versa. There's a joke and then an epiphany comes in and hits you on the side of the head. Oh, you know? um, I don't know if you have any graphics to say what what segments we're in, but uh, dead parents would be the thing to put up right now because um, I I <laughs> okay. was thinking of, I was thinking of one thing and then another, you just made me think of another. But my um, the part in in Gnit that you're talking about is is Peter with his mom who is not very well and she's asked him to tell her a story and he does I think a pretty pretty good job. She's she's coaching him, a, kind of nagging and coaching him along the way. But my mom, um, my mom died about about 11 months ago. It was right in the beginning of November. Um, and amazingly, in the middle of COVID, with people still not really knowing where we were at and not traveling much, my, I got up to outside of Boston and my sister and her husband got east from Oregon and my brother was taking care of my mom. And just to be quick, um, but also I hope, um, I don't know what the... It was one of the most beautiful, moving, complete times of my life. It was my mom was 91 and she'd had dementia for 
a long, long time, but she, and she didn't, that quite didn't lift, but she found this unbelievably present place. And it was just, it was like meeting my mom as a really surprising, mischievous 12 year old girl kind of, she just had, she was singing these crazy songs from 60 years ago or more 80 years ago. I don't know. Um, but I'm, I have been, I, I just imagine everyone is, has, and that is a non COVID story really. And, 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 um, and I'm so glad that it is just cause I think to, there must've been a lot of people who, who died in that very alienating scene in a hospital with people in mm-hmm. full space gear kind of, you know, and I, my poor mom and, and it, 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 anyone just would have been so disoriented by that and so scared by that. Um, uh, and anyway, um, I, uh, I think of the open house. That, so that, that play, my dad died uh, exactly 24 hours before my daughter was born, which. Oh my God. Did, and, and after the open house was written and performed. Um, but that's kind of the, um, he, you may have noticed I've already moved on. To, we were not, we were not so close. And uh, okay. um, he only had 91. He also died at 91. Um, so I give him a wow. break. He was only 91. He didn't really have a chance to make his feelings <laughs> clear about how he felt about people and things. Um, but uh, anyway, that, that play, I think I find, and, and more and more, um, I, that one accidentally is epiphanaic to me in that the the family that's there at the end is a very different family. And I hope that I had so much fun working with Oliver Butler on that just because we, we spent hours and hours with a really great set crew and um, with the design team, just having stuff like wallpaper that would slowly fall off and reveal another Mm -hmm. old print underneath and um, just things like that. Um, But um, but I know this whole. I know your show is about driving people to confess their faults, and so yes, this is uh, a therapy session here. Yeah, uh, so so I think I think that could be. It could be that I am both intentionally, you know, getting close to an epiphany and then then backing out, but then also sub sub unconsciously or subconsciously do that, and um, uh, I don't know. Yeah, well, no, I mean, it, at, at the very least, it seems like the subject of your work or something you're drawn to, characters who do that, uh, even, even if they're just one, the one person on stage, I feel like Tom Paine is, is constantly trying to avoid himself while he's even in the space. You know? um, I, yeah, the, you know, there's a way that I've, I've had conversations with people and they talk about failure and they say, there's a lot of failure in your work. And I, I guess that's true. And I don't, that's not a... I don't, I, I wouldn't fight anyone about that if they were yeah. seeing and feeling a lot of that, but I, I, I just always want to slightly rephrase it to um, almost succeeding at something that's really, really close to impossible. Kind of, you know, you okay, can, yeah. you can fail that's at something fair. easy, but uh, <laughs> so I think, I think, I hope Tom Paine in all of his near misses that the, they, it accumulates into something like knowing, you know, possibly. Yeah. yeah. So uh, speaking of your other plays, you have some, some fans on Facebook who are asking, since we talked about community briefly there, um, how do you think the residents of Middletown handled the pandemic? 
Oh, huh. <laughs> I just, first, I, uh, I love that question. Um, and it's I great just, to think of them as, as still around, right? Like the yeah. town's still there and it's a real place. And how, no, would they, how would they handle it? Um, they all died. Um, no, uh, um, it's I mean, sometime when they all died, right? Yeah. That, yeah, that's the terrible yeah. impulse that we've been talking about. I just think that's a lovely question. I guess I think they I think they did pretty well. I don't think there are a lot of even. Um, yeah, I, I take that question seriously. I think it's a lovely question. They all did really, really well. They um, they took the best advice they could get. They didn't get too smart about it. They uh, they cared for each other. Some of them even, you know, dropped uh, the librarian, got people to um, start baking. They, she did a baking thing over Zoom. And uh, <laughs> they had, the bread was flying around. Middletown was just, the air was thick with uh, the beautiful smell of, of um, baking bread. No kidding. That's awesome. Um, it can like almost see Middletown as a series, right? You know? <laughs> Visit the people of Middletown. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if that was one of the TV projects you uh, you worked on, but you know, I wanted to ask. Uh, one thing I did with uh, when I talked to Rain was I just there's a lot of questions in Tom Payne, um, and there's a lot of there's a few questions in uh, in Gannett. I want to just throw to you directly. One being, is there a difference between line and storytelling? I think oh, uh, I forget who asked that, but it's in the play. Yeah. Um, it, depending on who, de I, you know, no, depending on who's measuring it. But um, uh, yeah, in, in many, in many important ways, no. In a few important ways, yes, there is a big difference. <laughs> Good uh, answer. And, Good and, answer. And, then, and, and, and then in really boring, subtle, um, kind of almost clinical ways, there is a, uh, um, yeah, you could actually say there. I, I just watched a thing by Neil Gaiman. You know that guy? Mm -hmm. the, yeah. I actually, I just, I have seen a video about him talking about writing, and I haven't read a lick of. And I bet he's, I bet he's really good. Um, <laughs> but he might, he might say on the one hand, there's no difference, and then on the other, he, he sort of posited that they are mutually exclusive, and that if you're lying, then you're not. That storytelling has to derive from. Absolute truth from an honesty from yourself. So, you could, if this were two hours long, I would start pushing the notion that um, they are mutually exclusive, and there's no there's no overlap. If um, if it's lies, it's not storytelling. If it's storytelling, it's not lies. That's uh, that's good. Um, the, another question uh, in the play, of course, is who are you? I think we already know that one well, or do we? The answer um, about me or you or who? who? Yeah. Well, you know, who are since you? You're the you're the yeah. interviewee. I actually i i not punting. Um, okay, I think that I think that's a magical. It's a magical question, and uh, you know, I think I look at my my daughter. On the one hand, she made a sound. She did not cry when she was born. She made this funny sound that kind of went ah, and she kind of she's never made it again. And she really, that was her. And I have a picture of her from about 20 minutes old where I was holding her like that and she was looking at me. And um, so she is she, you know, um, yeah. and she, she has been she. Um, but then, I don't know, 
then you hear these words coming out and it's amazing. And just, we, she was wanting me to watch the, my little pony movie last night. And okay. I, I asked if I, if she thought I'd like it. And she said, yeah, I do. I think you'll like it. Uh, they really put a lot of effort into it. And so, uh, <laughs> Uh, is that where she learned the word horrid? I want to know. Or is that? I know? wonder. <laughs> I wonder where horrid came from. I'm sure it's. Uh, she, there's a lot of shows with uh, witches and um, you know horrid stuff going on. So, right, the right, horror, right. She had parts. Yeah, no. She, that, there's some. Fake on, sorry. Effects. Oh, I shouldn't say that. There's there's some special effects in Gnit that uh, she found horrid. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah, no. There there's some horrid moments. Genuinely horrid. Or by whatever definition, like not in the pejorative sense necessarily, but you know. yeah, we would no, no spoilers here. We don't want to give away the big, you know, prosthetic uh, blood effects or whatever, whatever they are. <laughs> um, so I spoke to Oliver Butler this morning a little bit about your work, just because you know it's just it's an excuse to talk to Oliver, um, and he talked about your work being about mistakes and anti-perfectionism, and yet there's a precision to it uh, that, you know, I think Rain, Rain Wilson also said that you can't change a word. But on the other hand, there's a paradox. He said there's a balance where uh, Oliver said, you view your own work as something to be discovered. So it's on the page, but actually the, the work is being discovered in the room. I wonder if you could talk about that balance between writing and then its realization, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I think I'm excited to we're go, we start rehearsals on Tuesday next. And um, I I have. Um, it's funny, I think I I was always theoretically of that position that I it was something to figure out with people. And I think I'm maybe just a little bit more um, in very real person ways. I I've, I'm excited. I think I'm going to be like I used to be, but more so or something like that, where um, mm -hmm. I'm just excited to see. And it's, it's, it seems just right um, to have three new people coming and, and three people who are, are remaining um, because that's sort of a, what the year, the time has been is, is people trying to figure out how to go on <laughs> with parts of their community and parts of their community, not there, you know, all that stuff. Um, so I'm really, really, we have a slightly shortened rehearsal process, so it can't, I don't know, we've got plenty of work to do, but I just am really, really excited to, um, I feel less, I don't know that I feel, um, I feel more and more connected, but less and less sort of um, capital O ownership of, a, of, of things as, as I move on and in life. Oh, in life, not just in this process. I think so. I think so. Yeah. Okay. I think that's true. Right. Yeah. I mean, okay. we, we got, we rented a car and, and got out of here and I brought a dehumidifier was one thing that I put in the car and not, not too, too much else stuff. And uh, that was, that was to my mind, that was what a good dad does in an emergency was, well, let's get a dehumidifier in the car because, um, they say COVID uh, thrive. This thing called COVID thrives in dry atmospheres, and uh, so um, we let a lot of stuff. I mean, again, I had the luckiest time, and I know a lot of people didn't. And uh, 
so I don't want to, I, I don't want to go on about my. Yeah, no, that's fine. It sounds, it sounds great. Uh, I've seen it being there for your family is something that I both loved and then eventually I have to do some work too. So this year has been interesting for that on that, on that, on that side. I wanted to ask about um, you've made your career in a lot of New York with a lot of New York, New York companies been produced around the country though. You have a following elsewhere. Um, and I just wondered if you could talk about the field in general. You heard us talking earlier about some of the uh, foment that's gone on. And, and, you know, in the case of CTG, I'm not asking you to talk about taper or, or that specifically, but the idea of using your power as a playwright, whatever it is, or uh, to, to make change in the field, or, or whether you feel like in general, the field needs to examine itself. Um, and and what's, what's your thoughts about that are? Oh, I, 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 I very much do. I think there, there, are, there are people um, who um, can more urgently feel the need to, yeah. you know, to, to begin the conversation or, or you know, um, but I absolutely, um, it's a, it's an exciting time. And that's a very dry way to put it. Um, yeah, I, I think a massive reexamination is in, is in order. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I don't want to, I don't want to hem and haw. Um, ask another version of that if you, if you like. Well, Rob. so I, I think that someone on Facebook did just ask the question, what do you think your responsibility is as a playwright? I guess that can be defined. Yeah, it's people I, in the room, the field, the world. Yeah, you know, it's. Um, I do believe it is the responsibility of the artist to, to, um, to through their work, with their work, and with other people, become the, the best person that they can be, and that that um, I, that might sound incredibly. Pollyanna-ish and bland, um, but I think there are a lot of really, really practical ways that that could be expressed. And uh, you know, just thinking about you know, um, Kimie Nishikawa, who was a, did the most gorgeous set for Gnit, and it is it's just been sitting there. It is it's the most poetic thing I could think of over the, all those months. It was just sitting there with a little ghost light sitting in the middle of it. Um, but she's, you know, she's done some really really great things to just bring very very nuts and bolts um issues to to into the conversation you know and just just stuff like um if theaters are expecting designers to be in the physical theater for this many hours during a tech process why am i not on the payroll for that theater you know if you're telling me to what building i got to be in don't, aren't i an employee etc cetera, etc cetera. and just really reasonable things and I know there's, I know there's a lot, a lot of conversations going on and I just, this again might just sound like, um, like wheezing. I think the playwright's responsibility now is to be, to be as open and thoughtful and, uh, um, um, and, and just to try to uh, hear as much as possible, you know? And then there are people with urgent, urgent, urgent um, issues and stories and problems to uh, bring to light, you know? So that's, a, mm -hmm. that's, that's there too. Right. 
we got a we got a few other questions from Facebook. I'd love to throw your way as well. Um, the, the it's like a multi part question, but the first part is: what kind of stories do you think are lacking in the theatrical community right now? Um, I guess I mean at part partly I'd say I don't I don't fully know because if I did I think. I think I would try to write them because I'd think, oh, if that's lacking, then it must be needed. And then that, um, but uh, I, uh, um, I don't, I don't know specifically. And I, I think um, I have to say, I think that f formal inventiveness, if it can be done with a sensitivity to what it might be expressing in terms of human um, events, human experience um i uh that I, I don't think that's the answer that the person might be looking for and maybe that that um but i i think um formally inventive stuff can be a way to see things that we have been looking at for a long time in a new way you know um yeah i'm sorry and that might that might tie into to the answer to this next question which is how you think we can get more young people to see theater with a world so built around streaming and the internet. I, I don't really know. And, you know, you know, um, I don't, I don't really know. There's, there's, there's probably things to do that might seem vulgar to people like just try just, you know, if you just got the big, the just got a bunch of, TikTok kids and um and and YouTube sensation people and you said okay we're gonna figure something out with you guys and uh, it's gonna happen it's gonna happen live uh you know um I I suppose you could do things like that that might seem a little desperate um uh what to do I don't know I mean clearly this <clears throat> it I I, I uh, it's a good big question. Um, <laughs> You know, yeah, and, it's one we I, ask all the time. Yeah, well. I was gonna say, I mean, yeah. you can do stories about kids, and I don't know, there's probably pretty good data. You guys probably have pretty good data on does do young people go to see stories about kids, and I'm not ent entirely sure they do. I, I don't know, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't either. I wish I did. <laughs> I, uh, the, I, my hunch would be you don't get young people to go to the store to the theater to see stories about very old people, but you know. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I mean that's a good hunch. <laughs> I, I would believe that hunch as well. And then yeah. the the last kind of big question this person had is, and which kind of ties into the theme of how the last year and a half has been. But can you talk a little bit about the importance of being in the room with other humans instead of watching things from home or being isolated uh, when trying to experience, especially theater? Yeah, and it's. Uh... I don't know if it makes it more special and magical to say that it is crucial and necessary or to say that actually it isn't. And it's only crucial and necessary if you want to feel the full spectrum of the beauty and mystery of the universe, you know, so that's not, not crucial. You don't have to, but um, I do think, I don't know. I've always, as the more I get quote used to it or the more i do theater and it's now been a year and a half since i've really done anything except zoom stuff um it's so strange and beautiful and i don't I, that, all that stuff about the heart people's heart rates synchronizing mm -hmm. and uh you know the 
physiological stuff that happens with human beings just by nature of sitting in one room and facing one direction is um it's deep and it's mysterious and i um i don't know i, I don't reckon you've got people listening who've never gone to see a play before but if there is someone i'd say hey you should go see a play because it really is a you know good bad boring or ugly it's it is something you know it is something different from, from the other things and crazily sitting with oliver and listening to these sound cues it was it's a really really good um the sound work by dan kluger and lee kinney is so it, that we have a sound cue that begins the show that was done in March 2020 or February 2020. And it's almost exactly what you'd pick if you if you guys said, all right, we need something that sort of takes into account, acknowledges and gives room for mourning and joy and hardship and isolation. And we need something like that to just get us going. It, that's sort of the sound that we had in the track there. Um, anyway, it was, I almost couldn't, uh, it, it, it was really, really moving just to be sitting scrolling through these sounds and, uh, um, people who come to see the play will have to hear <clears throat> words in between the sounds, but I hope it'll still be a moving experience. No. <laughs> well, words between the sounds. Well, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. I can't wait. To, I'm going to see it uh, next month and uh, I can't wait to finally get to see it on stage um, and to sit in a room with people and feel that play. That's them. I'm I'm really psyched. We put a lot of just like uh, the My Little Pony movie. We put a lot of effort into it, so I hope uh, people will come out. No, no, really, truly, it's it's been a real uh, pleasure talking with you guys, and uh, thanks very much. Thanks so much. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Uh, yeah, thanks. And we'll, we'll we'll be back on October twenty second with the next edition. Will did you say have more, some more to say? I no? just was going to say thank. I, I um I again. Uh, it's kind of everything makes me cry in a funny way and uh, people, people sending uh, the Middletown question and all the questions, just people, I, I'm really, it's, it's, um, it's fun to think. Uh, it's, I could fool myself. This is a zoom call with you two guys. Um, um, but it's really nice. But no, it's going out to the world. It's, yeah. it's live. And I have to say that I could say no shade on our previous guests. That's probably the most Facebook questions we've had during one of these. So, you know, you're, you're a star, you're a theater star. All right. We'll take it to the bank. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much again. Thanks, JR. See you next time. Yeah. Thanks, JR. Nice to meet you and happy Friday to you guys. Thanks, Will. <laughs>